this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we were offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 12, our episode in honor of Black History Month about specific challenges that confront non-Hispanic Americans with fatty liver disease. This conversation starts with me speculating that it will take a combination of NITs similar to what Mazen Nouradine described in our previous episode to understand the pathophysiology behind the unique challenges faced by non-Hispanic Black Americans with Nafold or Nash. Stephen Harrison replied by listing a broad array of factors that might affect individual patients in this demographic segment. And after Yanni Adiri and Zaki Sharif discussed data confirming the demographic issue and also discussed the specific demographics and the possible presence of a broad racial disparity between Caucasians and non-Hispanic blacks in terms of disease markers, Donna Cryer raises the need to include a large enough sample of non-Hispanic blacks in clinical trial populations. While non-Hispanic black Americans are less likely to have fatty liver disease than other ethnic groups, those who do face unique challenges involving the nature of the disease and social determinants of health. This is an important issue for all of us to understand better and to act on more aggressively. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Stephen, I go back to last week's episode when uh, Mazen Nuruddin was talking about the idea over time to use combinations of non-invasive tests and ITs, many liquid in fact, to get a much better read on exactly what the disease was on a patient-by-patient level. Now, one of the problems I've always had with biopsies just doesn't tell you very much. So if we're dealing with different disease dynamics in the black community than we are in the Caucasian community, accepting the idea that people don't get decent medical care and this is kind of at the front edge, is it likely over time? That one of the things you might be in a position to discover uh, either through the LNIT or other NIT work is tests that will tell us what these differences are and how to manage or treat them better? Stephen Harrison. Yeah, I think so. I've listened and it's been a very interesting conversation. One of the things that I live with every day in drug development is healthcare disparity and treatment disparity. So as I think, Ani, you mentioned and others, we don't put very many African-Americans in clinical trials for now. I've sat here and tried to think about the numbers relative to what we've talked about. So there's only been two prospective trials ever done to determine the prevalence of NASH. Both were done in San Antonio in our cohort of patients presenting for routine colon cancer screening. And as Yanni, you mentioned, the prevalence of fatty liver is very, very low. The prevalence of NASH even lower, around 5%. So it makes it very challenging to understand the population, even if you are able to study it, because it's infrequent relative to other races and ethnicities. So, for instance, we don't really understand the genetic influences for the underpinnings of why patients don't get the more severe form of NASH, but yet why they are enriched potentially for hepatocellular carcinoma. And I think to Zaki's point about once you become cirrhotic and there is increased predilection for hepatocellular carcinoma, I wonder if some of the other influences that drive HCC are in play in this population. And again, it's unknown in my mind because we just don't study them in a large enough numbers to know. What's the role of smoking in this population relative to HCC in a cirrhotic alcohol? What about genetic poly-risk scores? You know, are we enriching for some genetic influence that we don't yet know or understand? Uh, Where does diabetes and obesity finally 
only come into play in this population? Is it that shift from a cirrhotic patient to hepatocellular carcinoma? We're not sure. And why did it not play a bigger role in progressing a NAFLD to a NASH and a NASH to cirrhosis? And why is it now coming into play on the HCC side? And then finally, as you mentioned, access to these clinical trials. It's not just we're not enrolling a large number of patients. It's access to these patients is challenging as well. And then if you can get them in the trial, are the response to therapy different? You know, do they respond differently to a THR beta or a pan or a GLP-1 or a, you know, OCA or, or other FXR agonist? I mean, are there mechanisms that are more targeted toward this particular population? And then that finally gets me around to your point, Roger, about non-invasive testing strategies. Are there biomarkers that are more typically elevated in this population than, say, a Hispanic, Caucasian, or an Asian population? Would it be more appropriate to do fibrous scan or less appropriate? That brings into question the FAST score. Would it be more appropriate to do MRIs, MR elastography, the MAST score, the MEFIB score? Would it be better to do blood-based technologies like NIS4? We don't know because we just don't study that enough, and maybe that's where NAIL and IT could really help address that issue. We are enrolling a lot of our constituents throughout the South as part of the NAIL NIT initiative. So hopefully we would have an enriched population of African Americans that would be able to be studied appropriately. But it's a huge issue with disparities in this population relative to everything we've talked about today. Yanni Adiri. Roger, I just would like to add to what Dr. Harrison just said. There was actually a um, well GAIN study, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, Dr. Harrison, talked about something similar to that aspect where it was an observational study to identify determinants of fibrosis progression in about 1,000 NASH patients using real-world data. Well, the, the analysis that I'm talking about anyway, the GAIN study is much larger. And what it showed was that, among other things, smoking was actually was associated, including lack of uh, full employment, was associated with significant fibrosis progression. And so to that aspect, I think that just, you know, you mentioned so many things and so many things that we have questions about. We're just now getting to understanding some of the facts. And I think it's important to really go deep to truly make the connections. Zaki Sharif. The other thing I want to add, if, Roger, if you allow me, is that what Stephen just said, we actually did a biomarker study using high throughput technologies like metabolomics, transcriptomics, comparing Caucasians and African-Americans taking tissues. We're talking about HCC patients as well as cirrhotic patients and then taking tissues as well as blood. And we did identify metabolites, especially through the metabolomic study using this gas chromatography, liquid chromatography, and mass spectrometry, that there are certain metabolites in the lipid phase that are highly upregulated in African-Americans, whereas they're normally uh, kind of regulated in uh, Caucasians. And then there are other metabolites that are highly upregulated in Caucasians and in the opposite direction in African-Americans. Of course, these are discoveries, but not necessarily evidence-based because to have an actual evidence that these are the drivers for the disparity, we have to do direct uh, experimental work, taking all these metabolites and then infusing them, of course, in cell culture and see what kind of signaling molecules would be driving the, the process of fibrosis and what have you. So we did uh, find a lot of biomarkers between the two ratios. Uh, actually, we call it a racial disparity in hepatocellular carcinoma patients uh, between African-American and, and Caucasian. So we have some evidence there, but there's more work that has to be done. Absolutely. It was a larger sample and, and we had about 200 samples. I think we need about 1,000 samples uh, to get a good uh, power for the sample. 
sample size as well as to determine this is a population-based kind of uh, evidence. Donna Cryer. One of the things I wanted to say is that to Stephen's comments, it is really important. I just want to underscore that well before we get to a trial that doesn't have significant participation rates with African Americans and are wondering about what we are missing, we need to fix that recruitment. I'm excited to partner with Summit Research and with all clinical trialists in this area as the Global Liver Institute and as our Liver Action Network you know, grows across the country. I do believe there is an untapped potential of people talking to their neighbors, of people talking to people, people talking to other patients about the value of participation in clinical trials that we really need to activate. And I'm really excited to do so because otherwise these drugs will still be approved and African-Americans will still be expected to take them. And we'll just have to be sort of going on faith like we do with all the other medications that have no African-Americans in their trials and just cross our fingers and hope they work for us. So I want to do better here in NASH. I want to do better here in hepatology, and I think we can. Let me ask you a question. So I do NASH research every day. I live in a city that is not enriched with African Americans, but where I trained and went to undergrad and went to med school, certainly is, and we had to do research there as well. In America, we we haven't done ourselves a service of historically doing well to this racial and ethnic group when it comes to research. And there's a bit of a stigma that comes with research in this population. Are, Are we getting beyond that or are there challenges we still have to overcome? The few times where where we do have opportunities to consider enrollment in NASH trials in this population, it seems like there's still challenges in trying to show the benefits of clinical trials research as opposed to being a guinea pig and am I more risk than benefit? I mean, how we that's a barrier that we need to break down. That's true. There is a trust deficit and there is a trust deficit because of historic treatment. There's a trust deficit because of treatment right now today. And there's a trust deficit as to what could happen tomorrow. I look though with great optimism to things like the Black Liver Health Initiative, which we honored in October. Um, and this is a group of Black transplant nurses who came out of the ivory tower uh, where they were in New York and started talking to their communities and did community needs assessments. Didn't talk about transplantation or donation or any of the things that they wanted at first. It was just, what does the community need? What does the community want? First, they started answering questions about vaccine hesitancy. Then the church that they were centering their activities with actually became a vaccine hub and vaccinated 20,000 people. And then they said, what what is this transplantation stuff? that you all do. Come talk to us about that. And they have started to refer patients in for transplantation. And I would submit that a great clinical research relationship could be built on top of that as well. In the work that I have done building a multicultural division for a clinical trial research firm well in the past, there is nothing that I have in that PowerPoint deck over in my drawer there that I wrote 20 years ago that is not true today and couldn't be applied this afternoon about building trust. But it has never been 
fully funded and fully staffed by people of the community and people who are trusted by the community. Until such time, things will not change. For things to change, we have to do things differently. And that means Stephen's having somebody to vouch for you, somebody who looks like me, to vouch for somebody who looks like you, who knows you for the passionate, trustworthy physician who does have the patient's best interest at heart in doing this research. It takes someone who is in the community, of the community, in language, of language, of culture, explaining and holding people's hands through the trial, having consent documents that you don't need a lawyer to, <laughs> to, to read and understand and explain to your family. All those parts need to be in place so that people can trust trials and trust them in the context of their lives and participate in them with the, in the context of their lives and explain it when people are going to look at them like they're crazy for participating, whether right. in their family or in their church or in their school, but they have confidence and they are armed with the right words. And so it takes all of that sort of bridge before and wrap around of trust and translation to be able to lift clinical participation for a variety of folks who have not participated sufficiently for us to have confidence in the drugs that emerge from them. But it can be done. Louise Campbell. I was just looking at the NHIR data on ethnicities in trials and it, it's about 9%. It's whether or not we need to move to formal recognition in multicultural societies and ethnic societies like a lot of Western cultures, ourselves, the US, Europe, Australia, that we have to define. And I appreciate that Stephen is in an area that's not rich in some populations, but we do multi-center studies. Maybe we have to define that a minimum of 15 to 20% of all studies have to be made up of different ethnic communities to get a broader range addressing some of the comments that Donna was making. That we have to encourage, when we look at the COVID vaccine studies, only 5% were made up of ethnicities, yet they were largely more greatly affected than a lot of Caucasians. So there is a lot of hesitancy. Obviously, I do some work within vaccine centres, and there is a distinct hesitancy among ethnic communities, but they are coming forward. More of our first doses now are of ethnicities that have been affected greatly. They're still there, but I think the dialogue has to come in all areas of healthcare, from where they're placed in wards, where they get access to care, and that's everybody. We know there's less access to liver care and people who have liver knowledge in all hospitals, except when you get to major centres. We discussed it on the nursing podcast, that was a major issue, but once you get to a major centre, you get great care. So it's a fascinating topic, but how do we enrich those populations? Donna's described some of the work that they're doing. How do we get that in a hospital? I don't know. How do we get it into the clinical trials? I don't know. People have to be represented better. We've discussed it before, but I just find the whole topic absolutely fascinating, how we get across those barriers and how we get inclusion. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with Jorn Schottenberg, Ian Rowe, and first-timer Chris Estes, epidemiologist and fatty liver disease modeler at the Center for Disease Analysis Foundation. Our topic, the public health value of conducting fatty liver screening at community-based sites. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.